welcome back to Annabelle in the Suit Sky, episode 22. I'm in quite a bit of a different spot in comparison to the last couple of times I've recorded. I've moved across all the way from the west to the east side of Canada in terms of the past two weeks or so. There have been a couple of opportunities that have popped up around here, so at this point in time I'm going to be in a little bit of a different sort of recording set, but at least I was able to bring along my equipment and my computer tower, so at least I'll be able to move around and still be able to edit regardless of where I am in this place, even though I will admit moving my tower in of itself was from planes to trains to automobiles was more than enough trouble and it was worth, but considering I don't have a functional laptop at this point, I will have to make do. Um, but at this point in time, we are still at least not really in the middle of, considering that these two episodes will be a common theme throughout the entirety of May, but I guess music in May is what we're going to be continuing with, but before we get to the topic at hand, there's a lot of news that have definitely popped up over the past couple of weeks that I'm going to have to go and take notice of. So, at least we'll start with the only P major piece of convention news at this point, considering that Anime Expo Lite is going to be a 2021 virtual event that's going to be 5 bucks US a ticket, with all the proceeds going to charity, considering that they will host this is what they are going to host in place of an in-person Anime Expo convention, and try to move it towards their an actual in-person event into the next year. So this will take place on July 3rd and 4th from 12pm to 8pm, and with all proceeds going to the Hate is a Virus Community Action Fund. And they are now able to be purchased on this website, and even though we're still going to be in the middle of virtual cons for the next coming months, honestly I feel like the majority of this is going to be coming up towards uh, 2022. So like we did in 2020, we're just going to have to move our expectations to the next year, and honestly just hope for the better. Now, I guess we'll get through a handful of the negative aspects in terms of news that came through this week, kind of going a bit of back and forth with some whiplash, because the final Evangelion film that Studio Car was able to produce with Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 has already had reports of slander, threats, criminal intent against the majority of their staff that worked on the production, and it... And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like not much else has changed here, considering that when Hideaki Anno finished the majority of his run for the original Evangelion television series, he got a slew of death threats and negative press release in terms of him finishing in, in not a way that he was able to mark as satisfactory. Of course, because of production issues, the last two episodes in the last couple of months leading into it were definitely a trial on the studio in of itself, but that didn't necessarily stop any of the crowd that had been enjoying it for the majority of its runtime to completely flip a 180 and in turn slander and threaten the people that were in charge of its creation. And considering even after everything that happened with the arson attack against Kyoto Animation years past, it's just like... I. And I understand that it is incredibly difficult to kind of bend and focus your passion towards anything whenever something that you have such care and such close relation to end in such a way that isn't satisfactory, but that gives you absolutely no fucking right to just be a dick, to threaten anybody who is in charge of the production, even though at this point in time, if you've been in the anime industry long enough, you know how much of a hell it is just to even get anything off the ground and what productions actually go through in order to try and get anything out the door, so... At this point in time, if anybody is, like, looking for anything towards to, just read into the industry, realize, like, how problematic and troublesome it actually is to get these products. I understand that Evangelion 4.0 has been in production for this long, and some people aren't going to be satisfied regardless of how much positive outlook and how much it was able to accomplish in of its own right. I still haven't seen it, 
but I'm still going to be welcoming it with open arms just to kind of see what the conclusion of a series as monolithic as this one is going to bring. So just look into the industry, realize how much work actually goes into this, and as a fan of any of these works and into this medium in general, just don't be a dick, honestly. Considering that leading into it, we're getting more and more pieces and more and more people that have been part of the production in terms of animators and crew along the majority of MAPPA's, cre uh, not creations, but more projects and productions, as more and more animators describe working conditions inside of the studio as like a factory. And I can definitely appreciate what they brought to the table, considering that already MAPPA has been able to give us the final season, or the first part of the final season of Attack on Titan. They did a really good job with the adaptation of Jujutsu Kaisen. And even recently, the projects like Zombieland Saga, Banana Fish, and Yuri on Ice. And I can definitely see where the cracks are starting to form in the sense that Masao Mariyama, who was the one that initially created the studio and funded it, has essentially moved on to make his own studio, whereas the current student MAPPA is headed by one of the producers that was also in within the creation or was a part one of the original members inside of the inception of MAPPA. But I can definitely see where the troubles are starting to form, considering that when your head and your president is one that is a producer and has a mindset to create money, it is definitely understandable that they would try and go through as many projects as they can and capitalize on the successes that have been going through. In terms of MAPPA, has been a many more than anybody expected, considering that what they were, how many shows that they were able to put on in 2020 in terms of Dorohe Doro, God of High School, Jujutsu Kaisen, Attack on Titan, all of these just came out in last year. And of course, a success is great, but when you realize what you have to do and how much more resources you have to put on in order to capitalize upon that success on top of the amount of pro projects that actually have to be put into it, and they actually have to continuously work on in tandem with everything else that's going on with the studio, because of what the anime industry is, we can definitely see how that amount of stress can almost completely disable and handicap a studio unless the majority of that must go on to their production staff. Considering that MAPPA's decision to work on four shows at the same time instead of properly training its team for that such corrections wouldn't be necessary, a lot of the people that have been coming out of it have been comparing this kind of work environment to a factory, where the bottom-rung animators are tasked with correcting issues instead of drawing on the projects that they have at hand, and more than 80% of the employees have had similar complaints at this time. And so I really appreciate the adaptations that Studio Mappa has been able to bring to light and bring onto the screen, but it's just that I can see with the amount of successes that they've been able to pump out, especially with Chainsaw Man coming out near the end of the year, I can only fear for what the crew of this entire flagship is going to have to deal with until the bubble inside of it starts to burst, and more and more people decide to leave and just hang up because of overwork, and the amount of outsourcing they're going to have to accomplish in order to just get all these projects out the door, it's really concerning. It's just not something that you'd like to see, especially when you're able to pump out such great works like the Jujutsu Kaisen adaptation, and do what no other studio thought would have been possible and actually bring the final season of Attack on Titan to fruition. I'm very concerned. Incredibly concerned. But in terms of films that I at least know have a steady stream and have been doing a relatively good job at keeping a, re a good pace for everything to be coming into fruition is definitely Mamoru Hosoda's new film, Bell. 
And on top of the fact that I'm just learning as of reading this, the fact that they've been <laughs> collaborating with Ireland's Cartoon Saloon Studio, which as I've done in a previous episode that worked on Wolfwalkers and Song of the Sea, like the fact that they're also a part of this, the fact that they also have a hand in the creation of this new project that definitely seems like it's going back to Mamoru Hosoda's like, better works in terms of Summer Wars and taking it back to their roots... It only makes me more and more positive and more and more curious to see what they're able to do. Because as much as I enjoyed his previous works, the stuff that he's put out lately in terms of Mirai and Boy and the Beast, unfortunately those were definitely not projects that I got a lot of enjoyment out of. So the fact that this definitely seems like it's going back to something that's a little more relatable and much more familiar is definitely a way that Mamoru Hosoda can get himself back on track and try and create projects that he will probably have a much better time heading around the bounds with. And then in terms of home releases, Crunchyroll and Sentai Filmworks have already decided to go through with a handful of new ones that have already been planned out of the woodwork in terms of Haikyuu to the top, the most recent um, Haikyuu season, as well as Rent-A-Girlfriend to add on to the new home video releases, but the ones that I'm legitimately interested in and might actually have to buy a copy of is Keep Your Hands Off Hazoken. Like, these are all going to be titles that are going to be able to be sent home through a physical copy as a mix of a subtitled and English dubbed content, and I'm really curious to see what they're actually going to be able to bring to this kind of product. Because there is nothing more that I would like to see out of this home video release than to see more than enough behind the scenes, especially in terms of what Masaki Yuasa was able to put into it, and definitely kind of see how everybody inside of the creative staff was able to get their own personal flourish and kind of see what they were able to contribute to such a miraculous production such as this. But if there was one piece of news for sure that definitely took everybody by surprise, would have definitely been the passing of Kintaro Mira. And it just was so out of the blue, just out of left field, that the fact that they were able to keep his death so under wraps, and the fact that in that he passed away on May 6th, but nobody knew, they never gave any sort of public release of his condition and of his passing until the 20th of May, was absolutely astounding, the fact that they were able to keep such a large <laughs> just passing and death under their wraps. It's, it's definitely going to have to come down and I'm definitely going to have to talk about it on an entirely other episode because there's just so much that Mira was able to accomplish and how much influence and what kind of impact he was able to make on the manga industry and the anime industry as a whole, especially with his just tour de force and his most notable work that is Berserk. I personally didn't start reading it until 2015, around the time when they finally got off the boat and the fact that I didn't have to wait all those years in terms of his hiatuses and his in uh, his unabashed slipshod release schedule. I don't know. I don't. I uh, I really don't know. There have been rumors that he has a studio with him, and that he has already made notes about what his conclusion would be, considering that even as of this time, Berserk is incomplete. And everybody thought, myself included, that it was a joke where, oh man, none of us are going to live long enough to see the end of Berserk, and now the fact that that's come to fruition, except in the exact opposite way that we thought, it just makes it more and more 
sad and tragic that we potentially might not ever see the end of his story, of Guts's story, of the Band of the Hawks story. And there's not really much that I can add to that. There's not really much that really seems that any sort of light onto his work could ever do him and his projects justice, but maybe one day I'll try. And at this point in time, all we can do is just mourn and look back on everything that he was able to do and create in his own world. And so, sure, we can go to a slightly lighter version of Dark Fantasy in this case, because I know that you guys are all sick of me of talking about um of talking about Demon Slayer, but I guess I'm not going to lie and say that this is going to be the last of it, because now that it has come overseas and it has had its uh, limited but still lengthy ru- uh, runtime inside of theaters, it has now already peaked as the number two anime film inside of the U.S. After, tra- after going through the record that was held by Pokemon 2000 as its second place, the fact that it was able to do that over a film that was right in the middle of Pokemania when it was able to came out, the only film that it is now behind is Mewtwo Strikes Back. And it is definitely standing far ahead in the sense that the first Pokemon movie has 85 million under its wraps, while Mugen Train only has 44. It's still kind of insane what it was able to accomplish, even with its limited release runtime. I still need to get this movie under my belt. That <laughs> we finally got through. That was one of the more lengthy news segments that have popped up over the past couple of episodes. I now at least get to finish off this music in May with not something in terms of soundtracks that were so influential into the creation of the projects that they were attributed with, but in terms of the ones that make those compositions possible. And so even though I have no background in music other than, haha, those sounds sound good, I, I have nothing in terms of experience with harmonies, with textures, with melodies, and the dynamics regular to the cadence of the bars and the arpeggios that anybody else could attribute to any sort of soundtrack and composition to a film or a television series. This is my personal outlook that can always be taken as a grain of salt because almost all of music is such a subjective medium, but at least I would like to give my perspective. And in this case, at least for this week's episode, I want to talk about the ones that make it all possible. The ones who are the composers and the sound directors that still make these projects shine in the various ways that they're still able to accomplish. So I think the easiest way to start out, and the first person to take a look upon and what their catalog of work has attributed to the anime medium, would definitely come across to a much more notable name throughout the 2000s and the early 2010s in the form of Yoko Kano. And she was definitely at work way before the 2000s in the case that she was one of the major composers attributed to the Macross franchise. And to this day, it is still on my list, not necessarily that it is a high priority, but just to kind of see what that kind of area with a combination of sci-fi and idol work to kind of get a perspective on how important that was at the time and how it became such a major success inside of those two genres. Considering that the one that I've always been given recommendations towards would have definitely been Macross in the mood for love, at some point in time, it will come across to me, and I will jump to it. But a handful of the other ones that Yoko Kano definitely goes towards 
and the ones that she's not as well known for, but had a huge hand in, in terms of actually giving it her own personal flair, would be the ones of Escaflone in the Ghost in the Shell standalone complex television series, and through Wolf's Reign. Which at this, which at some point in time, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch because I've probably haven't given it a set since like 2012. But I kind of feel like it would be a much better look back, especially with the amount of new information and the people that I now know who are attributed to that kind of show. I'll definitely have to go through. But of course, whenever anybody recommends and sees Yoko Kano, the first person that she is always attributed to, especially when she does any of her projects inside of the anime medium, is that of Shinichiro Watanabe. This is the man behind Cowboy Bebop. This is the one that went through with MAPPA, like I was talking previous, and did Kids on the Slope. He was the one that was more of a series director, who honestly gave birth to one of the most interesting, but more influential episodic series that was still under his belt in the form of Space Dandy, which was a lot more interesting considering that as much as Watanabe was the chief director of this series, he gave so many up-and-coming like directors and people of the work to say, hey, do you want to come and direct an anime episode in your own style, in your own way? And there are just so many varying pieces of this puzzle, some of better quality than others, but the breadth that they were able to accomplish, not only in the director's work, but the sound design and the composition as well, was more than enough. And of course, everybody knows her relationship and being one of the members of the seatbelts, who especially did the first opening of Cowboy Bebop. I think it's time we blow this scene, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. But then, on top of that, just the jazz that is infused into such a work as Bebop, I would definitely not be as settled if I didn't include at least one portion of that jazz. And to be fair, probably my favorite one would be one of the major portions of the middle piece of her soundtrack called Space Lion. And then besides Cowboy Bebop's introduction, the next time that Yoko Kano really did such a diverse and varied soundtrack that everybody kind of gave listen to, especially with what Gigguk was able to bring to light whenever it was brought back into the fray, was Terror in Resonance. Even though the show's quality dipped into its later half, that is in no case of what happened to the soundtrack that it was able to accompany with. And of course, the one major scene that pops up in a lot of the people, and it was the first one that really etched itself into my mind, would have definitely come from one of its tracks, is... Someone tell me how I got here From the city to this frontier And there's just so many pieces of this composition that really do add to every single scene that they are accompanied by, which is why Watanabe and Yoko are just such are just such a great pair and duet whenever it comes to these projects. And of course I would love to throw a handful of names like Walt and Hana into the mix, 
but I guess one of the only major parts of the composition that everybody also decides to go through is Vaughn. there's not really much left to say about that, considering that this duo of Watanabe and Kano are just such... Nothing they make is any short of a banger. Every single project that they are able to collaborate and actually come together is just such a masterclass in what they're able to facilitate and push towards the project that they're actually able to elevate. And I guess, speaking of duets, in in that kind of same vein... I only kind of just wanted to briefly touch on it, considering that another really good composer that's been brought up to it related to another director that I really enjoy would definitely go in the form of Kensuke Ushio, considering that he's had his work in the hands of projects like Liz and the Bluebird, but then he does a real he's really had a good relationship going with Masaki Wasa in the sense that he recently did the composition for a handful of the shows in terms of Japan Sinks with Devilman Crybaby, and then the one that I'd like to talk about most in terms of how unique but fitting it was to the composition was Ping Pong. And Ping Pong the Animation, on top of being one of my favorite series of all time, is just that how Kensuke is able to just incorporate all the sounds and the motion and the dynamicism behind such a small-scale sport in the name of ping-pong, or table tennis, but he's just able to do so much to add to what looks like an incredibly mundane back-and-forth, especially with kind of the minimalistic style that the show is able to bring. He just infuses it with such a familiarity and with such a natural fusion of what the sport is and what it's able to incorporate into the soundtrack in of itself in terms of stuff like ping pong chase. But whenever the hero of our story changes from perspective, from character to character, as in there are so many moving but really exceptional pieces to this actual work, you are able to get a really good idea of who the essential hero and who is the one who is described as such, especially when the hero appears, themes whenever he is able to move forward. Personally, I would say my favorite part of this piece would definitely go in terms of Kong Wenge's not essential theme, since he's already got one in the form of China, but whenever he is incorporated and when he is the one that is moving the majority of the plot along and he is the central force that moves it forward, when we come to his momentous dynamic serves, and his games, when his pride is on the line, like a dance, fits in so perfectly. 
so I'm really curious to see how that kind of duet of Yuasa and Ushio is able to move forward, to just to kind of see, even though I know that Masaki Yuasa is taking a bit of a break at the moment, I really want to see if he ever decides to come back and do a duet with this guy anytime in the future. Um, but in terms of somebody who is a lot more notable inside the community, especially with how bombastic his compositions and his scores are, everybody knows the term, the Sawano drop. And Hiroyuki Sawano has definitely been able to do that and make it a part of his repertoire in any other show that he is attributed with, and he does it to absolute perfection. And so, of course, the one most noticeable that everybody like goes back to is especially his work on Attack on Titan. But then, of course, a handful of the other stuff that he's able to do, and a lot of his projects that he's pumped over the past couple of years, would have definitely gone through with the Gundam Unicorn OVAs that are also on Netflix, and I'd definitely give those a recommendation. It would be a lot of Guilty Crowns, like major, quote-unquote, crowning achievements, even though there weren't really many to say inside of the series. Guilty Crown is definitely not really a show that I would recommend, but I would recommend listening to the soundtrack because it does a really good job emphasizing the importance of every situation that the characters are involved in. But don't really expect much in terms of quality when the writing takes a dive in the second season. Um, but besides that, another series that I definitely have to rewatch since it's been years since I watched it as it was airing would have definitely been Kill a Kill. A lot of his work that everybody was really um, like looking forward to seeing, including myself, because the initial uh, write-up and staff listing of this series called Now No to Zero, which came back in around, I think, 2014-2015, had Hiroyuki Sawano as the composer, but also Genorobuchi as the quote-unquote main series writer, when in actuality he was only the one that wrote out the outlines and they had somebody else come in and fill the blanks because he was too busy, but Genorobuchi's name brought the project to light, as did Hiroyuki Sawano's, and it did its job to too much of a degree because Alnozir is the same deal as Guilty Crown, where it has a really relatively decent and cool setup, it's just that the characters and how the plot decides to revolve and move forward is really dog shit. <laughs> just, so I definitely wouldn't give um, any sort of recommendations towards that. Um, but one of the projects that Studio Wit did in between the seasons of Attack on Titan would have definitely been Cabinary in the Iron Fortress, which Hiroyuki Sawano also decided to jump on and contribute a lot of his stuff with, which is very much like a, another, like, take on the zombie genre. It, it was so incredibly similar to Attack on Titan in that vein. It's just that, like, in terms of the size and the, uh, relative, uh, like, number of the threats that humanity had to essentially go through and try and conquer. It's definitely not as good as Attack on Titan, but it was definitely a good week-by-week -week watch, so I don't regret that in any form. I've heard varying, though, pieces on another one of his works, Recreators, definitely not in terms of his soundtrack, but definitely on how the story kind of moves back and forth, and some people call it a masterclass in, like, incorporating social media in the, in the sense that um, what a character is in the public eye towards the creator's eye and the different personalities that they're able to create inside of many different frames of reference... And I've heard mixed things. It's not really high on the priority list. Maybe in some point I'll give it a watch, but Hiroyuki Sawano did really did a good job. Um, but then one of the more, in terms of the most recent anime project that he decided to go through and attribute on would have definitely been Studio Trigger's Promare. And damn does this soundtrack slap. Damn does it add so much to its energy and to its themes and its core, like, dynamicism that it is definitely in the same vein of all the soundtracks that I talked about in the previous video, that it 
is such an integral part of Promare's story, and you could not like see any of these soundtracks or any of these works being made in any other combination in of except themselves. Because of course there are great pieces like Ashes and Nexus that come in through and really do a good job like building up the situation before it finally like bursts into a major crescendo. And of, of course I'm throwing that term around even though I said I didn't really have as much to go through at the beginning of the video. But the character themes and songs and what eventually becomes one of the more prominent battle themes inside definitely attributes it to Leo the most. And that is in the form of Superfly. But then, of course, I would definitely say the title track of what accompanies this film definitely goes through, and you recognize it since it's at the, both be the beginning and the end of it, would definitely take place and take the title of Inferno. And it does a really good job both opening us up to the grandizing world that the majority of this takes place in, but also a really, like, trigger-esque final hurrah and send-off once it actually goes through towards its conclusion. And I've already seen this movie three times, and the fact that it can honestly go wherever you want, whether you want to watch it at home, whether it was good in theaters, whether you can do it on a big screen or a small screen, in English and in Japanese, the English tub is surprisingly well settled, and the fact that I was able to focus on the animation that was going behind it rather than focusing on reading everything towards just really added to the situation because this film is definitely a spectacle and the soundtrack does more than enough of a good job to attribute that as well as give it the energy that it needs. And now moving on to somebody who is a lot more subtle in terms of the soundtracks that he's able to compose but is definitely a lot more recent when it comes to his success would have been Kevin Penkin, our resident Aussie. And considering that the majority of the stuff that he did beforehand, especially doing a lot of video game soundtracks like Nor 9 and moving towards that into the 2010s, he also was the registered composer under the, well, under the dog OVA. But he didn't really get his name put into the spotlight as much as he did in terms of his composition of Maiden Abyss. And I definitely talked at length about those handful of tracks that he was able to incorporate into the world of the Abyss and how much it added to its setting and how much it added to its world that I'd definitely be repeating myself a lot of the time, but as much as I would seen from Rise of the Shield Hero and Tower of God, they definitely didn't add as much as it did towards the project that he was able to get himself off the ground with. So, definitely wouldn't recommend either of those, so... Like, right off Tower God, right off Rise of Shield Hero, definitely go give Maiden Abyss a watch if you haven't. 
And I guess moving on to another lesser known, where he's more in charge of sound direction than actually taking care of the majority of the composition himself, and that would go to Yoya Tsuroka. Considering that he's done a handful of, like, major projects, like, in relation to the Monogatari franchise with Bakamonogatari, the Kisa Monogatari trilogy films, but then he's also done something really scientific and well-laid-back but mysterious in terms of Serial Experiments Lane, Gonkutsuo, as well as Ethetale Memories, but then doing something a lot more shonen seinen and, like, action-oriented in terms of the Inuyasha battle themes, the Afro Samurai soundtrack, and then also at least pointing out one or two smooth tracks out of what would become the original Helsing soundtrack. And while the cho- the choirs and the rambunctious choirs that go through the majority of Helsing Ultimate soundtrack, the, uh, not necessarily reimagining, but the one that is a lot more faithful to the manga and completes the story of Helsing to that degree, the really smooth piano and, like, underlaying tone of what Helsing was able to do in comparison is definitely something that has to be noted and has to be compared into making not into making Alucard not only seem incredibly dangerous and volatile, but really smooth and calculating whenever he has to complete any job that is tasked of him. But then besides that, the one that he is definitely most notable on towards the majority of the projects that he's completed, and all of those are done under Kyoto Animation, since he's done a lot, almost all, of the sound direction in terms of stuff like Full Metal Panic, 3... Kaon, Clanad, Chunibyo, Air, Amagi Brilliant Park, as well as giving to life Yauko Namada's original family-oriented and just such a wholesome community-based look at Tomoko Market. And then probably, eh, well, in comparison to Kaon, the other incredibly music-oriented show that is under Kyoto Animation's repertoire, he also did the sound direction for the entire composition set of Sound Euphonium. Hibike Euphonium, either or works, considering that at least with this one in particular, the one that always comes out is the titular title of the series Euphonium soundtrack that always gets attributed back to both Asuka and Kumiko. <laughs> And if there's anything else that I would definitely have to recommend, it would have to be Liz and the Bluebirds uh, orchestral piece that everybody's able to work on between two different works, which I think was Sound Euphonium's second season, as well as the opening, but the practice inside of Liz and the Bluebird, which are both fantastic in their own right. And honestly, if you still haven't give <laughs> if you still haven't given Sound Euphonium a shot just because, you know, 
band isn't really much of your thing, I'd still give it a wholehearted recommendation because all the character drama and the relationships between everybody else that still has to go back and forth between these projects is definitely something that needs to be taken note of and definitely something that needs to be, well, hopefully concluded in the next couple of years. And so before moving on to the last and most notable piece of this episode, I guess the one other guy that I kind of want to talk to in the same deal that I kind of stumbled upon uh, would have been Yoshiaki Fujisawa. And all of this just came from the fact that I loved the Land of Lustre soundtrack. But the fact that this guy has taken part in, like, not only the eccentric family, but a place further than the universe in terms of sound direction and composition was just more than enough to, like, give him points in my book to adding such a good and well-depth sound to those adaptations in of themselves. Especially eccentric family, considering, like, the energy and the solemn tunes that go back and forth between trying to keep this family together after the death of a family member, but also giving them the energy to move forward in what is the incredibly rambunctious and high-energy setting of Kyoto. And he also did a bit of sound direction on the original Love Live seasons, and Musho Contente, Jobless Reincarnation, but we'll definitely talk about that in a later date, and hopefully I won't have to at all. But then, yeah. Land of the Lustrous is just such a beautiful and flowing orchestric sound that just really adds a lot to every single emotional scene that is incorporated inside of this series. It's one of the only ones that I, rec I recommend and recognize through the majority of its runtime that whenever I'm given a piece of the soundtrack, it immediately just thrusts me back into the moment of the scene that it is attributed with. And not a lot of shows, series, or films are able to do that to such a dynamic degree and to such a set that so many parts of the soundtrack are able to give me that kind of feeling. Especially with the really slow but creeping and finally majestic breath that we're able to take inside of this world with the main theme. even though the majority of it is attributed to Diamond running through the fields, you can definitely remember the sense of awe that you are able to see her running with Phosphophyllite in her arms. the one that really takes me back and really just throws me back into the turmoil of the scene that is in question that I will have to recommend you go watch considering that Land of the Lustrous is just such an amazing series but whenever I hear breaking I am reminded of those tumultuous feelings
I don't know, man. It's just such a good soundtrack. Oh, I love it so much. And I know, and I'm just really curious to see what uh, Studio Orange has, like, left up inside of their backlog and inside of their production schedule, because so far, I'm really enjoying Godzilla Singular Point. I really enjoyed Beastars Season 1 more than Season 2, but if they're ever able to continuously attribute more, you know, reasons to bring Land of the Lustrous' story into 3D and onto the screen, I would love to see them continue the story as they have done with the previous project that they've been able to incorporate themselves into. But I mean, one can only hope. And then I guess one of the last ones that I wanted to touch upon would have definitely been one of the more notable ones that who has attributed himself to almost every single piece of Ghibli's catalog, and that would go towards Joe Hisaishi. And there's just so much life and beauty that he is able to imbue inside of the compositions that he is able to incorporate inside of almost all of Ghibli's entire catalog, and it is honestly attributed to every single film that I found into my favorites list at all. From the glistening wartime but somber fields inside of the Castle in the Sky soundtrack. as well as the hope that he's able to imbue whenever we are transported to Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind. tangent that I want to go to definitely relates to Arietti, but whenever there is also an international influence that's being brought upon these, especially when it comes to Cecile Corbel's Our House Below, it honestly just makes more of a romantic and just beautiful introduction than the majority of the series could ever hold a candle to. But then, of course, I'd be remiss not to mention anything related to Spirited Away, considering that almost the entirety of that soundtrack I need to listen to again. And in fact, it's probably the series that I just haven't rewatched in ages, even though I now have the entire Ghibli catalog under my belt. But definitely a handful of the ones that come through, especially with The Name of Life, just imbues so much of it inside of its own world. And of course, the one that is my personal favorite out of entire, <laughs> out of Ghibli's entire catalog would definitely be Porco Rosso. I can't really explain why this one's my favorite. I would definitely have to go at length just to try and 
get all of these thoughts and try and categorize them in any sort of way that seems coherent, but Porco Rosso definitely does a really good job in terms of what kind of passion Miyazaki imbued into this world that is entirely encapsulated and surrounded by aviation and planes. But Hisaishi did a really good job in terms of not only having moments that are incredibly dynamic and action-filled and somber, but ones that are nostalgic in the sense of bygone days. And as of recently, he is actually going to be attributed, of course, to Hayao Miyazaki's next film, How Do You Live? But as of recently, but in terms of as of recently, he has been able to release a composition album called Dream Songs, The Essential Joe Hisaishi, as of that was being able to reduce in 2020, and then as of this year, he was able to compose an original soundtrack for the Red Fox Scholar to incorporate 34 compositions into this album. But then, of course, how could we not forget that he will be attributed to Miyazaki's potential last film, How Do You Live?, and he will still be able to collaborate and still work with that kind of mind and imbue that sense of wonder and nostalgia at least one last time. And I guess that'll do for this year. Thanks for sticking around. I guess if there's anything that I've been trying to go through, I really had a lot of music on the mind as of late, so thinking about getting these two episodes with a common theme over the course of May seemed like it was a good enough time to incorporate that kind of idea and that kind of theme that if I continue on with this work and if I continue moving forward with all of these episodes and keeping up with hopefully a consistent schedule, then at least at that point in time, I'll be able to work around and see if music in May will actually be able to live longer than just one year. But yeah, thanks for sticking around. Audrey has definitely been able to help me go through and collaborate with a handful of other podcasters that have been getting into the medium, so I'd definitely like to give them a thanks, as well as moving towards another podcast that a buddy of mine has been thankfully been able to welcome me onto his cast in terms of the FAV, where they talk about their favorite anime, food, and video games, um, albeit a handful of other topics, but honestly, I really am glad that they were able to incorporate me and bring me onto that kind of stage. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Thankfully, I've got more than enough of a backlog of ideas to work with, so I won't have to look too far to at least move forward onto a handful of the next topics leading into the next couple of months. Thanks for stopping by. Cheers. Thank you.